many of you know from the email that went out last week that I am in the final stretch of working on my doctoral dissertation. By the way, if anybody would like to still help out with transcribing, we could still use a few more people. But uh, And the elders allowed me to say that, so just so we know. But yesterday, I was I spent the entire day and a good part of Friday evening trying to figure out how to create a database for the case studies that I'm doing. And I was listening to a guy online, and he was working me through, and I was watching him and had my other screen with the, with the database on it and learning how to plug things in and where they go and how to move them around and do all these kinds of things. And one of the things that he said, I've heard many, many times when you're dealing with computers, is G-I-G-O. G-I-G-O stands for? Garbage in, garbage out. And the whole idea is how you set up that database, how you set up the interactions, the material that you place into it, the the information that you place into it. If it is good information and all of the design is correct, then what you will come out on the other side is good information, and it will put it together, and it will help to show relationships and all of the rest. But if you put garbage in, if the design is not properly set up, if the information you place into the database is not proper, then what you will get on the outside, uh, coming out the other end, what will come out in the research will be also garbage, will not be effective. One of the things back when I was in high school, we used to have a retreat that gathered at Pinebrook. It's a Bible camp some of you may be familiar with up in the Poconos. And there would be about a hundred and some teenagers that would gather together and we'd get to hear some really good speakers. And one of them was a man by the name of Earl Rodmacher. Earl Rodmacher was the president of the Conservative Baptist Seminary out in Portland, Oregon. And um, I got to know him better as I had a chance to interact with him. He was a kind of a crotchety old guy, but really knew his stuff, was kind of fun to be around. And he did a message that dealt with garbage in, garbage out. But he wasn't talking about computers. He's talking about this. And his point was to a group of teenagers, and it was profound. In fact, Cindy talks about the fact that it had real impact in her life was that what I put into here will affect what comes out in my life. If I put good stuff in here, then what comes out in my life will have an element of quality to it, especially as I choose to use that good stuff to make my decisions, to direct my life, to to determine and to evaluate the things that are going on around me. But if I put garbage in here, if I fill my thoughts and I fill my mind with that which is not of good quality, it will work itself out in my life. And the same thing that is true about my database on my computer is true about the database up here. Now, when I was involved in working in the area of counseling, 
One of the things that those who are involved in counseling understand is this truth. What we think determines who we are. It isn't the circumstances around us. Those do not determine who I am. The circumstances around me do not control my choices, do not control what I do. They may direct it in terms of I have to respond to them, but what defines who I am is what goes on in my mind, what goes on in my brain, what goes on in my thinking. Albert Ellis, who was a um, famous theorist in the area of psychology, talked about what he called cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive is the mind and what we think, what we perceive, how we see things determines how we behave. If I view something as a threat, I will respond in a certain way. If I view something as being positive, I will respond in a certain way. If I view something as neutral, my cognitive perception, my thinking, how I perceive things, determines how I act. Now, the problem is, when most of us are thinking about this, we usually think this way. We usually think an event caused our reaction. Cindy coming up to me and saying, why are you angry? I'm angry because you, and then I fill in the blank. You did this, you did that, you did this. What I'm saying is, the event, Cindy, that you caused is the reason why I'm responding in this way. It's not my fault. But the reality is, that's not true. Events do not cause our reaction. There can be a similar event in two people's lives, and they react in totally different ways. There can be the same event in my life, and I respond in two different ways. In developing his theory of responses, Albert Ellis said, every event passes through something that creates our reaction. And that is my perceptions, my evaluations, my thoughts. Now, sometimes there's immediate responses. If we suddenly hear a loud noise, I'm going to jump. I may not have had time to evaluate it, but most of the things in our lives, we respond as in our minds we are evaluating. Whether we're aware of it or not, we are evaluating. Now, I can demonstrate this. There's a classic story told, and I don't know if I've used it here or not, but a man gets on a subway car with his children. And his children are younger, they're their preschool and their elementary age, and he is sitting there with his head down, kind of ignoring his children, while they're running wild around the subway car, and a particular person is sitting there watching this man with his unruly children, and he's thinking to himself, why doesn't that man control his children? What is wrong with that man? Why doesn't he do something about his kids?
suddenly the man becomes aware of his children. And he looks up. And he turns to the man who had been thinking through those thoughts. He says to the man, oh, I'm sorry. I, I guess I need to deal with my children. My wife just died at the hospital. And we're on our way home. And I guess my mind was a bit distracted. The man who was evaluating that situation and reacting with anger and a lack of patience, suddenly his reaction changed in a moment. The circumstance was the same. The children were still running around. The the man was having difficulty interacting with his kids. But in that moment, the man who was evaluating the situation, his evaluation changed, and you know his reaction changed. So he went up and sat next to the man, and he said, I'm so sorry to hear that. Can I pray for you? All of events in our lives, the events, the things that take place in our lives, pass through our evaluation. Pass through our perceptions. Pass through our thoughts. Now, Robert Ellis tells us that. The psychiatrist. I'm sorry, not Robert, Albert Ellis. Hollywood tells us that. There's an amazing movie out. It's a kid's movie. If you have not gone to see it, I highly recommend it. It's a movie called Inside Out. And the whole idea, whoever wrote that movie has an absolutely profound understanding of the human psyche. I I remember sitting there watching this movie with Austin and thinking, this is amazing. It talked about core images in our mind and events in our mind that shape how we respond to our world and how those core memories, those core events form our evaluations and our perceptions. Talked about when those core senses, those core assumptions are messed up. We we go into that period in which we... um, we dematerialize. We, we, we don't understand what's going on. And, and, and everything kind of gets jumbled up and scrambled and all the rest. But the whole idea is what controls us is not circumstances. What controls us is what's going on up here. Watch. So, how was the first day of school? It was fine, I guess. I don't know. Do you ever look at someone and wonder, what is going on inside their head? Did you guys pick up on that? Sure did. Something's wrong. We're going to find out what's happening, but we'll need support. Signal the husband. Uh-oh, she's looking at us. What did she say? What? Oh, oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, We left the toilet seat up. What? What is it, woman? What? Signal him again. Ah, so, Riley, how was school? Riley, you gotta be kidding me. 
school was great, all right? What was that? I thought you said we were gonna act casual. Riley, is everything okay? <sighs> Sir, she just rolled her eyes at us. All right, make a show of force. I don't wanna have to put the foot down. No, not the foot. Riley, I do not like this new attitude. Oh, I'll show you attitude, old no, man. No, 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 breathe. What is your problem? Just leave me alone. Sir, reporting high levels of sass. Take it to DEFCON 2. DEFCON 2. I don't know where this disrespectful attitude came from. You want a piece of this, Pops? Yeah, well, look. Prepare the foot. Keys to safety position. Ready to launch on your command, sir. Just shut up! Fire! That's it. Go to your room. The foot is down. The foot is down. Woo! Good job, gentlemen. That could have been a disaster. Well, that was a disaster. There is so much that is profound about that movie. Did you notice the father is controlled by anger and the mother is controlled by sadness? You know, did you notice the interactions between the different emotions and different perceptions that were going on? It is just a classic. But you know what? It's not only psychologists and not only Hollywood that understands that what goes on up here really affects and controls who we are. The scripture teaches that too. Now, we have a problem. And the problem is this, that scripture doesn't use the same terminology that we use to describe what goes on inside. We have now a biological understanding that those things take place in our brain, in our head, in our mind. And that our thinking takes place with synapses firing and not firing and the, the chemicals that are in our brains and the hormones that affect our thinking and all of that. But it takes place in our mind. The Greeks didn't understand that and the Hebrews didn't. And so when they were talking about sort of the, the internal thinking, the internal uh, stuff that goes on within us, they had a number of different words that they used. They weren't always used really this precisely the same way. But usually when you think about all that's going on in here, the scripture uses the word heart. We've talked about it before. In fact, we looked at it in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. When we want to talk about deep passion and emotion, we talk about our heart. I love you with all my heart. And you'll remember that in the Greek uh, language and the Greek mindset, if I wanted to tell Cindy I love you with passion and deepness and all the rest, I would say I love you with all of my colon. Never seen a Valentine card like that. Be a weird shape, wouldn't it? But if you're talking about sort of the day-by-day -day interactions that take place in our brains, the, the evaluations, the thoughts, the, the things like that, the scripture uses the word heart. And there are many passages that talk about the fact that it's what is going on inside that affects what comes about on the outside. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 7. He says what comes out of a person defiles him, or defines him, determines the directions he's going in. And in this context, he's talking about the, the dietary laws and all the worry about what they had just eaten. And, and what Jesus is saying is it's not food going into the stomach. It's what comes out of it. And he goes and says this, 
For from within, out of the human heart. And I added the little phrase, it's the heart is the source of our thinking, our emotions, and our will. Now, what comes out of that in Scripture is the mind. In other words, based on all of that, the mind sort of responds, and that responding to that internal is what the Scripture often talks about, is mind. We use that word mind to describe our thinking, our emotions, our decisions, all of it. What you saw in that wonderful little clip where it was focused on the head and all of that that was taking place and the, 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 the discussions you have inside of your head, yes, you do it and I do it too. You know, it's when they start coming out and we answer ourselves. That's when you get a little concerned. But all of that that goes on inside there, what they would have talked about, we do this, they would have done this. You see, it's out of what's inside. That comes evil ideas, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil, deceit, debauchery, envy, slander, pride, and folly. And you could go the other way. That comes commitment and love and dedication and, and, and you know, uh, positive thoughts and, and all the rest. It comes from within. And the question becomes, how do we handle what's within? How do we change that? When we are growing up as children, there are events that come into our lives, and I don't have time to deal with a, a developed anthropology, but as we're growing up with, as kids, there's things that enter our lives, and we interpret them, and based on that, we have sort of ideas of what makes our world work, and whether relationships are good or bad, or whether the world is good or bad, or whether we belong or don't belong, or whether we're adequate for tasks or inadequate for tasks. The problem with children is the proverb says, there is what in the heart of a child? Foolishness. They lack wisdom. And so our children are so dependent on us to help them to interpret the things that are going on in their world. But as we grow older, that responsibility of affecting our thinking, of affecting our minds, of affecting our hearts, falls upon us. And we need to take the steps in our lives. We need to take the steps in our day-by-day existence. We need to take the steps in the midst of our culture, in the midst of what we see and what we read, to help mold and develop that heart within. That's why Solomon in Proverbs, when he's writing to his son, he says, my son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. Bring that which is good inside. Make it a part of your thinking. Make it a part of what fills your mind. Make it a part of what you are doing on a daily basis. Take that which is good and that which is profitable and that which is aesthetically pleasing and make that a part of your lives. Why? For they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body above all else. As Solomon is beginning the writing of the book of Proverbs, he says, notice this. You need to guard your heart. You need to guard what fills the inside of you. 
You can't control what happened to you as a child. And, and there is a transforming that has to take place. And Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, that we are renewed, we are changed by the renewing of our minds. That's the process of changing what is already there. But there's also the process of pouring in the good stuff. Because it's out of the heart, out of that inside stuff, out of the mind in our culture. It is the wellspring of life. Beloved, how are you guarding your heart? How are you nourishing your heart? How are you filling up that which controls your entire life? As we come here to Philippians chapter 4, you're saying, gee, we're finally there. Paul begins this section there in chapter 4 and verse 8 by saying, finally, brethren, or finally, brothers and sisters. It's all inclusive in that word. And, he, and what is the finally? He's not closing his letter. He still has some other things to say, and he, he's going to talk about their relationship, and he's going to talk about the, the mutuality of their relationship, and he's going to talk about the virtue of their relationship and the verses to follow. But the finally brothers takes us all the way back to chapter 4 and verse 1 when Paul says, learn what it means to stand firm in Christ. And you remember, he was telling us, you know, deal with the divisions that exist among you and deal with it in a way that reflects Christ. Know that God is near and therefore we can have joy and we can have peace and and we can have all those things that God provides for us in the relationship with him. And now he says, finally, let's summarize it. As he's been doing all the way through the book of Philippians, he focuses on our thinking. Have the same mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Think alike with one another. Think these things. Focus on these things. And as you come to this passage, what Paul focuses on is on, is on this. What we allow to shape our thinking controls our lives. What we allow to fill our brain controls our lives. Some of it active and some of it passive. Now, Paul will say, what we allow to fill our minds will influence what we think and what we think is who we are. He begins there in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, by the way, that's the main theme. The summary theme of all the six virtues that have just listed is that they are excellent and they are worthy of praise. And then he gives the command, think about this stuff. Fill your brains with this stuff. Now, the importance of this is seen in a number of ways. It's seen in that summary, finally, brothers and sisters. But it's seen in the way that Paul constructs this sentence. Verses 8 and 9 are one long sentence in the Greek. 
And the first part of it is a, is a parallelism. He, he, he has phrases one after another that are formed exactly the same. There's an adverb and a verb. Adverb and a verb. I mean, I'm sorry. Adverb and an adjective. Adverb and an adjective. Adverb and an adjective. There's no connections between them in the Greek. There's no ands. There's no, no, nothing that grammatically puts them together. And what he's trying to say is these stand by themselves. They're important. Then he does a conditional clause and where it says there in, in verse, at the end of verse 8, where he says, if anything of excellence or praiseworthy. The idea there is, since these things are excellent and praiseworthy, these six characteristics I've just mentioned, these six virtues I've just spent time focusing on, since those things are of excellence and praiseworthy, Then in the passage that follows, instead of using no conjunctions, he uses all kinds of conjunctions. One, right after another, after another, after another, after another. And Paul is being very careful. It's what you do when when, when you're putting together a message or a sermon. There are phrases that you work on and you you massage them and you you need them and you you work on them to make sure they're saying exactly what you want them to say and, and you do it in a way that hopefully has some impact. That's what Paul is doing here. He's massaging this sentence. He's kneading this sentence. This sentence. He's putting it to get together with rhetorical rules and, and methodology to say, Take a look. Pay attention. You know, the old preachers used to go. The, the old story is told there was a man that had a, his notes, and when somebody came up to his notes and looked at him, and it said, weak point, yell like crazy. This is not a weak point. But rhetorically, Paul is yelling like crazy. Pay attention. And what he wants us to pay attention to is that what we allow to fill our minds must be of the highest quality. What do you spend your head, your mind, your head thinking about all day long? Now, there are stuff you have to do. I told somebody that over the next three months, I'm simply going to be eating, sleeping, you know, thinking everything. Katrina relief. That's what my, my, my dissertation's on. But there needs to be other things that fill my mind. What are the good things, whether that's good or bad or not, but what are the good things filling your mind? Now, Paul uses two words. The first word that he uses there is he says, make sure that it is excellent, that it has the highest moral character, that this is good stuff. And the second word he uses is praiseworthy. That which fills our mind should be considered commendable, worthwhile. We can look at it and say, you know what? That's worth watching. That's worth listening to. That's worth seeing. Paul goes on as he's developing that. That's that main phrase found right there in the middle of verse 8. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy. But then he spells out the criteria of what's excellent and praiseworthy. And it's those six virtues that he begins the sentence with. When he says what is true and noble and right and pure. What is lovely. What is admirable. 
And as you look at the things that fill your mind, ask some questions. Questions like, is it true? Is this accurate? Does it reflect reality? Is this really the way things are? Is it noble? The idea is honorable and the opposition is vulgar. Is what I'm watching, what I'm reading, what I'm hearing, what I'm, what I'm filling my thoughts with, is it honorable? Or is it vulgar? Is it right? Paul uses the word often used for righteousness here, but he uses it in a very unique way. He uses it in the idea of this, that it motivates me to do what is right and responsible. I'm so amazed. I watch TV sometimes. And especially if you watch the dramas or the sitcoms. In, in one evening, every relationship was involved in an extramarital affair on the shows that I happened to go through and flip through. Does that motivate me to do what's right and responsible? Paul says, whatever is pure, is it leading me to purity of thoughts and motives and actions? Whatever is lovely, the word has the idea of aesthetic beauty. It has the idea of a Beethoven symphony. It's lovely, but at the same time, it could be speaking of of Mother Teresa and the work that she did. It's just kind of lovely. And then, is it winsome? The idea of that last phrase is that it doesn't cause offense. It's admirable. When people look at it, they say, yeah, that's good. Now, you know what I find in my life? I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of, uh, you know, I will watch shows and things like that. And I find that when I am purposeful, when I am picking up a book, I will read it. And as I'm reading through it, I'll think to myself, do I agree with that? Don't I agree with that? Is that right or is that wrong? Is that, is that noble or is it not noble? And, and I tend to evaluate it. You know when I have a problem with this? Is in my leisure time. And I just want to relax. And I need to ask myself, the things that I'm doing, profitable or not, building up or not. Now, again, we live in a world, you wouldn't be able to watch anything if you didn't. But you evaluate it. You think it through. What is this teaching me? Do I agree with this? I hate Little Mermaid. I know. Doesn't that make me terrible? Do you know what the theme of Little Mermaid is? Rightness is found in thumbing your nose at your dad and going totally in opposition to what he tells you to do. Oh, that one's gone. No, but just sit down with your kids and you say, is that right? Is is, is that what you ought to do? You, you, You use it to be noble. You use it to be wise. You use it to be right. But think. I'm not saying we have to avoid all impact from culture and that everything, and so we have to live in a monastery. You know, that didn't work either. I just got, instead of getting angry at the show, I got angry at Brother Philip because he got two apples and I only got one. 
In fact, what's so interesting here is that we are to fill our minds with what comes from our surrounding culture. What you may not pick up because we don't know the Greek words, we don't use the words like this, but all of these words come right out of the virtue list of the Greek culture. This isn't uniquely Christian. This is, this is cultural. Paul says, you know, there are things in our culture that are noble. There are things in our culture that are true. There are things in our culture that are, that are, that are, um, worthy. There are things in our culture that are lovely. There are things, and you, those are the things you let your mind dwell on. I, I was, what was it, Thursday night? Wednesday night? When the shootings happened out on the West Coast? And I remember just thinking, at the time, I got really angry at our culture. The, the word began to come out that the man had asked them, are, are you, what's your religion? And if they said Christians, he killed them. It would be so easy to say there's nothing good in our world. And just want to be in a monastery somewhere. When I used to live up north, I used to tell Cindy, let's move to northern Canada and homestead up there. Then we moved down to Louisiana. It was just too cold up there, and I made it Tahiti. Is that the answer? No, Paul says, you know what? Just be wise. Evaluate it. If it's good, accept it. Think through. What's the impact this is having on my life? You know, and I'll go down through the things that we we look at. When I was a kid growing up, it was television, books, magazines, you know, conversations. Now you got to add in their video games and computers and all the rest. Is this moving me in a good direction or not? This is what I ought to be filling my mind with. Is there good stuff on there? Oh, yeah. But be wise. And then Paul says, what fills our minds will chart the direction of our lives. You notice what it says there, where Paul says at the end of verse 8, think about such things. The idea there of thinking is not just the intellectual exercise. The thinking. The, you know, um, the cerebral activity. The word that Paul uses there is the idea of those things in my mind that direct or chart my actions. When I'm in a situation, I need to ask these questions. What is true about it? What is noble about it? What is right about it. And then I need to make decisions based on that thinking. But that thinking will only be there if I've spent my time filling my heart, my insights, my mind with that which is profitable. What you think is who you are. And you affect what you think by what you allow to come in, what fills your mind. 
But as Paul continues that sentence, and he's talking about that which is praiseworthy, in verse 9 he begins by, whatever you have heard, these kinds of things based on what you have heard. And he kind of takes that idea and he moves it one step farther. And he wants us to understand this, that those who we allow to guide our minds influence what we think. If you are a teenager here this morning, please listen to me. Who you choose to be your friends and your peers will in major and significant ways determine what kind of life you will live. If your peers are those that move you in ways that are not noble, that are not true, that are not right, that are not lovely, they will affect your thinking. Adults, you too. And what Paul begins there is he, the, the main phrase, the, the main exhort, exhortation is the call to do what is put into practice what they have heard and received and seen and learned. And he says, look around you. Who do you allow to have influence in your life? And he asks us to take a look at them and to use some criteria. The first thing he says is know what they teach, know what they believe, know what they're proclaiming. Please, I I hope you're so careful when you're flipping through the Christian stations on television. Know what they teach. There is so much heresy on there. Know what you read. I I read heretics sometimes. I want to know what they're coming from or or the direction they're coming from. But I read them with the knowledge that says, yeah, this isn't true. Scripture says this, not this. But know what they teach. That's the easiest one. Secondly, Paul says what you teach. Then he goes on to say this phrase. He says, what you have received. When we do communion tonight, we're going to gather together, and I'm going to, at one point, say this. That I pass on to you what was also passed on to me, which I received from the Lord. And the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. In the same way after supper. The idea is it's received. It comes from Christ. It went to his disciples. It goes to those that follow that. and gets passed down. That's the idea of received. It's the traditions of the fathers. It's the idea of that's what we have received. And what Paul wants us to understand is, what is it? We, we need to know what influences the teaching of those that we allow to come into our lives. Are they influenced by God's word or are they influenced by other things? Paul says, you want to know what I'm influenced by? I'm influenced by what I received and now I pass on to you that you might receive it. It's a very technical word there. Where do they get it from? What's the source? The professor that's so effervescent and and so winsome. What's the source of what he's teaching? Where does it come from? 
But then Paul goes on to say not only what they teach, not only what they've received, but the next one is, how are they known? What's their reputation? Now, this is really true about those who are leading you in the influence of your thinking. What's their reputation? There are so many parents that base their parenting on the books of Skinner, who was a behavioralist. Do you know his kids were horrendous? Are you aware of his reputation? Or Spock, Dr. Spock, not live long and prosper. His kids were horrible. What's their reputation? That they live it out. And then finally, we must know if they live consistently with their teaching. That they live it out. Paul begins this section by saying, what influences your thinking? What do you fill your mind with? And who do you allow to fill your mind? There is that which will be profitable and that which will be destructive. Make your choices. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say, don't watch this show and don't play this game. And, you know, that you have to deal with that with the Lord. If you want my opinion, come and talk to me. I'll be glad to tell you. The question becomes, is what I fill my mind with profitable and good, excellent and praiseworthy? And who I allow to influence me, are they those that are worthy of being followed? Ultimately, it's God and his revelation. Ultimately, it's a relationship with Christ through faith in him. And we talk about that every Sunday. how that's where all of this begins and the work of the Spirit in our lives. In fact, Paul ends this passage with these words. When he gives the promise, it's actually a benediction when he says, and the God of peace will be with you. God is working in our lives. You know Christ is your Savior. Put your faith in the fact that he died for you and you can be forgiven to have a relationship with him through that faith. But in the process of that work in our lives, God calls us to be careful about what we fill our heads with and who we allow to influence our thinking. Father, thank you for the example of Paul, for the challenge that is before us. Father, may we be like those to whom Paul is giving this challenge. May we seek in our lives to follow that which is true and noble, right and pure, lovely and admirable. We ask for your spirit to convict us where we need to change some of the things that are influencing our thinking. Father, we ask for your spirit to convict us where there may be relationships that we need to not allow to have such an influence in our lives. For it is our desire to reflect your Son and to be more and more like him. 
Father, if there's someone here that's not certain of their relationship with you, they're seeking, they're uncertain, they're, they, they just want to kind of find out what this is all about, I ask that you would encourage them to come to speak to me or someone else, how they might know for certain of a relationship with you. And Father, thank you that as we have a relationship, your spirit is at work. Help us to choose the things that he can use to change our thinking, to allow it to come into conformity to all that you are. And we ask it all in the name of your Son. Amen.